welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Alrighty, friends. If you want to find your way back to your seats, grab a Bible if you have one. Oh. This has already been so much fun today. Man, I never saw that coming. I wasn't here for, for rehearsal. I told the band, I'm like, you guys, sneaky, just so sneaky, so good. Um, okay, if you have a Bible, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 1 today, and uh, as, we, as you find your way there, a couple of things by, by way of getting started, the first of which, November the 24th, if you are interested, if you've never been baptized before and you've thought, you know, I think maybe I should be baptized or I want to be baptized or I'm considering baptism, we've got this big giant horse trough that we fill up uh, with water and we do that like right up here. Uh, And so we've got one person who said, I'd like to be baptized on November 24th. Can we do that? And we said, absolutely, we can do that. Do you care if we open it up to the rest of the church? She said, no, absolutely not. So if you're interested, you've never been and you want to be, November the 24th, we're doing it. All right, so... If you have questions, you want to talk more about that, Micah at awakenwest7th.com. All right? Sound good? Okay. So we are in week three of a series we do in the fall that we entitle DNA or values, and we're talking about, like, what are the values of Awaken? Values are interesting because you get to pick them. You get to choose them, right? I would argue that most of, uh, most, well, I would say all uh, Christian churches that bear the name of Jesus basically have the same mission, which is like, why do we exist? And that is in response to God's invitation to like be ambassadors and to partner with God in what God is up to, the renewal, the restoration, the redemption of all things. So the church's mission is kind of set. You don't get to really pick that if you're a church. But vi- vision and values are particular to a, to a specific church and its location, its neighborhood, the things that the Spirit of God is doing in that location, in that space, in that spot. And so values, I would argue, uh, they, they shift, they come and they go, depending on uh, who you are as a community, who, who, like what, what, what's the makeup of the people gathered in the room, but then also, what is God doing? What is God saying? How is God speaking and leading? And so we want to revisit that, and we're doing that this year uh, in this series. So we're, we're exploring the six stated values of Awaken, and Katie, our friend, is uh, painting those, and by the time we're all done, we will have those, and we'll hang that right over here on our right, so you, will, you won't forget them. They'll be in front of you always. Kind of, I think there's a verse about that, like put it on the doorpost of your heart so you, it's always on your mouth and always on your lips. Um, that'll be there, so there you go. Um, and in the past two weeks, for review, we started with Jesus as our first stated value. We don't want to assume that everybody knows that like, that's a value in our church. This, this person, the life and the teachings of Jesus, that that's going to be in the center of our life as a community. And we want to sort of take our cues from and listen to, pay attention to, be shaped by and molded by the life and teachings of Jesus. Last week, we talked about holism and this idea that we want to be a holistic community. We want to understand and experience the good news of the gospel in a holistic way. That Jesus' work is not just about my soul when I die, but rather that the work of God, the gospel, the good news about Jesus actually informs and impacts every system and every area of my life. And so to understand it in that fashion is a more holistic view of the gospel. So how you vote, or how you show up at Target to buy your clothes, or how you parent your children, or what food you eat, or how if you work out, and how you care for your body, all of these things are connected to and influenced by 
this gospel, this good news that God has, has done something in Jesus, that you were beloved and created in the image of God and bear the image of God, and Christ has made a way back to relationship with this God. So, what does it mean to understand a, a holistic gospel? This week, I want to talk about authenticity. When we first started Awaken, we have some friends named Chad and Liz Caswell. They've been dear friends of Laura and I's for like 15 years now, since we really moved back to Minnesota. And when we first got this idea of starting this church, Liz said to Laura and I over dinner, she's like, I think, Micah and Laura, that people will be drawn to Awaken because of your authenticity. And authenticity, for better or for worse, for me, is one of the, one of the highest priorities. Like, um, it, I, as I thought about, if I could pastor a church and I could be a part of a community and it were to sort of be about certain things, what would those things be? Authenticity has always been at the top of my list for a number of reasons. I'll share one in particular that really formed and shaped it. Uh, I was long ago, maybe 15 years ago or so, working at a church, and uh, we, we sort of, on a Sunday morning, we did something inadvertent. We stepped in it, like uh, we said something that we hadn't thought through or we could have said better, and a number of people were upset. I know that's hard to believe that that happened in a church, but it did. A bunch of people were really upset, you know, they filled out comment cards and the whole thing, you know what I mean? Did you notice we don't have comment cards? <laughs> I don't care. No, I, I do. I do care. I do care. If you ever go to a church, though, and they do have comment cards, put your name on the comment card if you fill it out. Okay, no, no anonymous comment cards. We had, at the churches that I did work at that did have comment cards, we threw out all the ones that didn't have names attached to them. Like, if you can't put your name on it, we're not interested. One person, after I preached on July 4th weekend, they're like, where is the American flag, number one? Number two, tell Micah to get a haircut. He looks terrible. <laughs> no name. I did keep that one. I, I put it right, in, right on my, you, know, you can't make that kind of stuff up. You know, you got to keep those, but why am I talking about comment cards? So people were filling out comment cards because we said something dumb, we said something inadvertent, and so at staff meeting the next week, we're in our staff meeting, we're sitting around a table, and we're all talking about, you know, this terrible snafu. And I said, in a moment of utter insanity, I said, why don't we just apologize? Like, why don't you just get up next Sunday and, like, say, this happened last week, and a number of you were upset by it, and you know what? I'm really sorry that that happened, and that wasn't our intent. And what I heard back was, we can't do that. You know, for whatever reason, we're trying to do excellence, and we're trying to do professional, and we're trying to do like church well, and the gospel, and this and that. And, and, and I heard this message of like, we, we, don't, we can't do that. And I was like, why? Why does that seem so crazy that you would just say, I'm sorry if you messed up? especially in the church for crying out loud. And I remember in that moment thinking to myself, if I'm ever a part of a church that I have any say in what we're about, it will be the kind of place where when we make a mess of it, we say, I'm sorry. You know, like in my family, I tell my girls, you, I, I won't get everything right, but I will always be the first to say, I'm sorry. And I hope you learn that from me and you learn that from your mother. But like as a church, what does it mean to be authentic, to like show up truly and honestly as ourselves? And that shaped me, for, uh, I, think, I, I think in good ways, and it's been something that has, that has been a high value of mine um, since then, and as a, as a person who attempts to lead well in a spiritual community, 
I said, if we're going to be about anything, we will, always be, we, will, we will absolutely be about authenticity. So what does that mean? The word authenticity, according to the dictionary, is as follows. It's, a, uh, it's worthy of acceptance or belief as conforming to or based on fact. So to the degree that it's congruent with what is real and factual, it's authentic, right? Conforming to an original so as to reproduce essential features, like that's an original Monet, it's not a fake or a, a reproduction, that's a true Monet painting. Um, it's not false or an imitation, it's real and actual. I love that idea. True to one's own personality, spirit, or character. So uh, to the degree that my insides match my outsides, I'm an authentic person. To the degree that my inside life is, dis is incongruent or dissonant with what I present, I am inauthentic. So what does it mean to be a church that values authenticity? To say we want our insides to match our outsides. We want to have congruence and harmony, uh, integration between who we say we are and who we actually are, right? And I want you as people who live in the world to have your insides match your outsides, to when you show up, you don't have this dualistic sort of uh, dissonant life, who you are on the inside versus who you present yourself to be. So to explore this value, we're going to do a good old-fashioned Bible study. You guys up for that? Uh, and usually I ask you to stand for the reading of the word, but I'm going to actually ask you to be seated, to stay seated, and um, I'm going to read the whole chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 1. And what I want you to do is really listen um, there's a, there's a uh, I think it's a psalm where it says, tune your ear to what I'm saying. I want you to really, like, if you have to close your eyes, if you want to sort of, like, take a couple deep breaths and really just listen to this story. Uh, this is, uh, I mentioned whenever we dedicate babies, this is the story this comes from. But this is the story of Hannah. So from 1 Samuel, we read this. There was a certain man from Ramathiam, a Zephite, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham son of Elihu, son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Panina. Panina had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of meat to his wife Panina and all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her until she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more than you to, than ten sons? Once they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house, and in her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head." And as she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. And Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. 
Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant what you have asked him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. And then she went away and ate something. And her face was no longer downcast. Early in the next morning, they arose and worshiped before the Lord and went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. And so in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And she named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for this. When her husband, Elkanah, went up with his family to offer annual sacrifice to the Lord and fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, after the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you, her husband Elkanah told her. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at her home and nursed her son until she weaned him. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young, uh, with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah, a flower, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, Pardon me. My Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. And so now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he will be given to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. Pray with me. God, this morning as we turn our hearts and our attention to uh, this story in your word, I pray that you would remind us, teach us, encourage us, uh, even provoke us, challenge us, in what it means to be authentic people who follow you with real and actual lives in real and actual ways, not as if or pretending. And I pray, God, that as we attempt to become authentic people, that we would become an authentic community where when people come to this place, they would know who we are and who you are, that what they see is what they would get, that they would know that there's no shadows here, there's no shifting, but it's true and real. And so to that end, we pray, and all God's people said together, amen. You may be seated. Oh, you already are. <laughs> I just have it, you know what I mean? Church started at 11. I got up at 6. I just got out, you know, Sunday morning, alarm goes off at 6. Um, that is such a great story, and so much could be said. We could take weeks to unpack it, but uh, I won't do that. I'll only offer a few thoughts. But a little bit of background so you understand where we are. This is likely taking place during the time of the judges. Uh, this is prior to Israel asking for and becoming a monarchy with a king. And so the time of the judges was when God would send these people who would offer words of encouragement, exhortation, sometimes challenge to the people of Israel. They would repent. They would live faithfully. Then they would sort of wander. Then another judge would be sent, so on and so forth. Likely this is written during the time of the judges because we know at the end of judges there's a yearly feast at Shiloh that is mentioned where all the people go up to Shiloh to worship and this is what's being described in 1 Samuel. Hannah means grace, Hana. Uh, Panina means pearl or jewel, ironically enough. Um, their names sort of fit in the story. And interestingly, Hannah, um, she's not the only person in scripture to, to, be, uh, to struggle with infertility. Uh, many women, actually, that's an interesting study. Sar Sarai, the wife of Abram, Rebecca, the wife of Isaac, Rachel, one of Jacob's wives, Manoah, who is the mother of Samson, 
uh, Hannah, the mother of Samuel, and Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, all struggled with infertility and being barren. Judaism is beautiful in the sense that it, it not only validates this struggle, this struggle, this real struggle for women and among women, but it elevates it by telling the story of Hannah every year at Rosh Hashanah when it's celebrated. Um, Hannah's not the first person to experience infertility, but she is the first woman to take her, ta- her case to God. One author says it this way, although she's not the first biblical woman to experience the pain of infertility, she's the first to confront God about her situation through personal prayer. And in a number of Midrashim, which is kind of like commentaries on Torah uh, and, and the Old Testament, Hannah is acknowledged to have introduced the model for contemporary, the contemporary way we pray and approach God. She's a beautiful story and a pretty amazing woman. I think if we're going to look at authenticity and we find, want to find a character in the Bible who shows up authentically, you'd be hard-pressed to find a better one than Hannah. So what do we learn from Hannah about showing up as an authentic human being in faith and in life? First is this. I think authenticity requires courage in action. A little review, right? Elkanah means God has possessed or God has created. He has two wives, Hannah, which means grace, who is barren, and Penina, which means pearl, who is not. Elkanah, um, though Hannah cannot provide him with children and sons specifically, loves Hannah and gives her a double portion of food as consolation for her grief and her sorrow. Uh, Penina, the pearl, is a bit of an irritant in the story, And whenever they go to the house of the Lord, she provokes her rival, it says, Hannah, to the point that Hannah weeps and will not eat in this case. And this doesn't happen just once, but it says multiple times whenever they go, Panina, she's, I mean, you can kind of imagine this woman, right? Like, I've raised three daughters, and the sort of rivalry that happens among sisters at times, and how cruel, well, just siblings in general, let's be honest, right? Because I had brothers, and we were awful to each other. But you can imagine this woman and, and like just provoking and like, like a gnat, you know, like just needling all the time at this very difficult and uh, deep pain and anguish that Hannah is feeling to the point that she's weeping and won't eat now at the temple. In one particular trip to Shiloh, which we get for sacrifice, in verse 9, it says, Once they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Which is a fascinating Hebrew word. In Hebrew, it's the word kum. And some would argue that you could translate it like to stand unto oneself. I would argue this is a pivotal moment in the story. Hannah, up up to this point, has sort of been... um, non-actionary, she's not sedentary, she hasn't moved, but the, the author makes a point to say Hannah stood up to maintain oneself, to be established, to be confirmed. She stands up for the first time. Whatever struggle she's in, whatever shade Panina is fit to throw at her, she's now taking it standing up. She's not lying down anymore. And I don't know how you walked in this morning. I know that life is hard. All of our lives, at certain points along the way, are difficult. And we get beat up, we get beat down, we get bruised, we get battered. Even people who have opportunity and luxury and privilege, as many of us do, life can be difficult. Amen? And it takes courage to stand up as oneself. What do I mean by that? I think we tell ourselves stories about ourselves. Stories as if something were true. Stories that we hoped were true if we hadn't made that mistake. 
We, we tell ourselves stories about ourselves in order to cope and deal with life and deal with the difficulties, but it says that Hannah stood unto herself. She stood up as herself. And I wonder if being authentic, in, at least in, in this case, isn't the courage to stand up as oneself. So whatever you've walked into the doors with this morning, is there an invitation from the divine to stand up, maybe for the first time or again anew, as yourself, not as what you hope, not as what you wished for, not as if something were true, but as it is, like shoulders square, feet on the ground, standing in your own name as yourself. I think to show up authentically in the world, it requires courage to stand up and and own our own stories. And whatever has happened, whether it's of your fault or not, to stand up in yourself. Not outside of yourself, looking at your true self, but presenting another version of it, right? But to stand as yourself. And that takes guts. That takes courage. Not only that, not only does Hannah stand up, but in a moment, in a breath, we find her where? In the temple. Like, she's on the move, baby. She's not a noun. She's not sedentary. She's not static. She's like moving, and she's made her way to the temple, which if you don't know anything about the ancient world, this is not where women are found. You know what I'm saying? Like, there are places where women were found, and this was not one of them. There was a space outside of, the inside of the temple, where the women and the Gentiles, and the, right, there was like concentric circles of import, and the women were on the far outside of it, but Hannah's like, nah, not gonna that. And she walks herself right into the temple. Not only does she stand up as herself, but she makes her way to the place where she needs to be. Despite whatever barriers she might find, despite what someone might say. In fact, I love the fact that the priest is like, makes an idiot of himself, right? He's like, why are you drinking? Why are you drunk? And she's like, man, you don't know nothing. Like, I am not drunk. I'm pouring out my soul to the Lord here. This is when the pastor stands up and says, I'm sorry, (laughs) right? But she moves, and she moves beyond barriers. She moves beyond walls. She moves beyond whatever's stopping her to get where she needs to be to say what she needs to say to the Lord. To live authentic lives, I want to suggest, first, we at least need to stand up into our own lives, into our own names, into who we actually are. Whatever has come and whatever has happened is here, and you are... In the, in the recovery movement, they say, wherever you are, that's where you'll be. Which is to say, you, you can't run from yourself. Like, whatever unfortunate decision has been made that you didn't think you'd end up making, or whatever scenario has played out that you didn't think you'd be a part of, like, wherever you are, that's where you'll be. You can't hide. So at the very least, just stand up. And friends, I know... Maybe more so now than ever in my life. I know that that's not an easy thing. It's easier said than done. But we read the story of Hannah, this inspiring woman who, who just, at the very least, stands up and then moves to the place where she needs to be to say what she needs to say, despite whatever barriers may be in her way. I love this chick. She's fantastic. I shouldn't have said that. I love this woman. She's very, very honorable and inspiring. Authenticity requires courage and action. I would also say authenticity in this story, as we see Hannah, is tethered grief and vulnerability. What do I mean by that? 
Hannah's response and her prayer as the first woman in the Bible to bring infertility and this lonely and devastating struggle to the Lord is a response filled with vulnerability and grief. And this isn't like saccharine grief, you know, like a substitute sugar. Like it's not something that's sort of glossed over. This is like real and raw, honest, no filters. Uh, The Hebrew here is literally, and she was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. Like, when's the last time you wept sore? That, that's deep. Many of you know Brene Brown. She's a researcher and author on the subject of shame. And I, I, I suspect that it was no different for Hannah than in our day and age. Like, this struggle comes with a lot of shame, so I'm told. And I see, I, I would, I would, I'd have to believe that for Hannah, this struggle came with a lot of shame. A lot of sadness and grief for sure, but shame for absolutely. Brene Brown argues that the only antidote or the one that actually transforms shame or has the potential to transform shame is ironically enough, vulnerability. The only antidote, the only way to stand against, to move beyond, to sort of push against shame is to be vulnerable. Which is the exact thing we don't want to do, right? When we feel shame, what we want to do is protect ourselves and not stand up and stay where we are, don't move. I have chickens, four of them. Whenever we like go like this to them, they just freeze and they put out their wings and they don't move. I, I, I feel like that sometimes in life, you know? Like, oh my God, just don't move. Maybe they won't see me. Authenticity and vulnerability go hand in hand. Like you cannot have one without the other. To be vulnerable is to be authentic. And to be authentic, to show up authentically, is a truly vulnerable action. So in this vulnerable act of authenticity, Hannah pours out her grief and sadness, her broken heart, her dreams, her longings, her desire. It's all out there. And more than that, her disappointment that these things are not fulfilled. It's all there. And for her, in this moment, there is real grief to be expressed. And she doesn't cover it up. She doesn't pretend it doesn't exist. I don't know when the last time you had bitterness of soul and wept until you were sore, but that is a gutsy place to live from. And when you're there, you don't have control over all that comes out. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's not just daisies and unicorns from that place. It's real and honest stuff. And so authenticity, for us at Awaken, is an attempt to be brutally honest about this. Um, She's honest about the fact that her spiritual life is full of grief and waiting. And nobody prepares you for the waiting. You know what I mean? Like, hey, follow Jesus. It's awesome. Like, he's died for you. He's conquered sin and death, and he offers that to you and offers true life and eternal life and abundant life, and it's going to be fantastic, you know? Daisies and unicorns. Let's do this. It's that way. No one tells you about the years of silence and waiting in the spiritual life. Nobody prepared me for that. They didn't tell it to me in college. You know, like I've been to so many churches and it's just joy, joy, joy. Jesus is the king, which is true, right? Like, and when there's reason to celebrate, we celebrate. Yes, absolutely. But nobody prepared me for the waiting. Nobody prepared me for the silence. Nobody prepared me for the grief. And here we find Hannah, who's just laying it all bare being honest about what's true and real. One of my best friends in ministry, Jenna Daniels, gave me this book. It's called Listening for God, 
a minister's journey through silence and doubt. And I want to read the opening paragraph, which I found to be incredibly profound. No one is ever prepared to endure the long silence that follows intimacy. No one is prepared to face it when it comes after lovemaking. No one is prepared to face it when it follows a season of intimacy with God. It is the hardest thing to talk about, and it is the hardest thing in the spiritual journey to prepare for. The long silence between intimacies. The interminable pause between words. The immeasurable seconds between pulses. The quiet between epiphanies. The hush after ecstasy. The listening for God. This is the spiritual journey. Learning how to live in the meantime. Between the last time you heard from God and the next time you will hear from God. I think for me, authenticity is of great value because I found the, the often declaration and description of the spiritual life inconsistent with the actual experienced reality of the spiritual life. And what I find in Hannah is like truth and honesty and something that rings true about what's, what's actual about the spiritual life. The long, interminable pauses between the last time I heard from God and the next time I will hear from God. That's true and real. When we hear from God, yes, my goodness, it's amazing, it's electric, it's like, it's like water for my soul, right? It is salvation. It's true, it's real, it's abundant. And that's not all that there is. And what, music like that sucks. You know what I mean? Like when it's just always four to the floor, bam, 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 bam. It's just terrible. It's just, it's not even interesting. It's not creative. And it's not true. And we know it. Like there's something about us that knows that that's not real. This is why jazz is so good and like music with movement and like crescendos, ups and downs. Because that's true. That's real. That's our life. I love Hannah because I think she says something that's true and real. Her grief is vulnerable and she lays it out there. Notice what she asks for, and here's the tethered part. Authenticity requires, it's tethered grief and vulnerability. Here's the tethered part. And not, your, not forget your servant, but give her a son. Terrible translation, really unfortunate. It's two Hebrew words. It's Zerah Anashim. Zerah means seed, Anashim. This is the tricky one. Lots of people have given a go at it. One of my favorite rabbis, he says... Hannah is still in the story. She asks, in her grief and her vulnerability, she is tethered to something greater than herself. And what she asks for is not for her alone. She asks for a seed for the people. She knows that she is not unto herself. She knows that she's a part of something larger. She knows she's a part of the community of God's people in the world. And God is up to something and doing something and on the move. And what she asks for is not just to like, quiet her own soul, but to still participate. To, yes, quiet her soul, but to still understand, to be tethered to something larger than herself. A Sarah Anashim, a seed for the people. 
So how do we be honest about grief and sadness and silence and waiting and still be tethered to something where it's not despair floating out into the sea alone unto oneself, like nowhere to go, but like sadness, grief, honesty, vulnerability tethered to a hope that while I haven't heard the voice of God for a while, I believe I will again. That's tethered. While I, while I haven't seen the light of God for a while, I believe the sun will rise again anew. Why? How do I know this? The faithful people who have walked this journey before me will tell me that that is true. And I've experienced that as true in my own life. So authentically, to show up authentically, I think we learned from Hannah that it's tethered grief and vulnerability. That we can be honest about our sadness and grief and waiting and darkness and silence. But not unto nothing, right? No, it's tethered to something. It's tethered to a hope and a belief that the sun will rise again. God says in scripture, as, as my faithfulness is as sure as the sun will rise again tomorrow in the east. Whew. I think authenticity also asks us to name our desire. I love this moment in this story. Remember she prayed and she's like, Lord, as long as you give me this child, I will like bring him to the temple and dedicate him to your service. Remember that? No razor will ever touch his head. That's the Nazarite vow. Samson was a Nazarite, dedicated to the Lord's service. Right? That's what she says. So then she has this baby. And the first opportunity she, does, she has to go to Shiloh and... and, and offer the, the child unto the Lord, what does she say? No. I want this moment. I want this season. What does she, she said, I will, after the child is weaned, I will bring him to the temple. Now, the average age of weaning a child from the nursing breast of its mother worldwide is about two years. I have to believe that in Hannah's day, it was longer. So let's just go with three. Here is a parent who says, no, I know what I said, Lord. I know I promised, but what I want is this moment, these moments with this baby. As a man who has never had the chance to nurse a child at my own breast, I know I'm on thin ice here. <laughs> and yet I'm going to tiptoe my way out onto this ledge and see if it doesn't hold me. I watched my wife nurse three girls, and I know that that was one of the sweetest moments of parenting and raising these children. That season. And I watched tears fall when it was over. And so here's a mom who made a promise and still has the guts to name what she wants, to name her desire. I want these moments with my baby. And I'll bring them, I'll bring them to the temple, I will, but not until I get these, not until I have this. And I recognized, like, this is a really vulnerable topic and a potentially difficult one, and yet I think it's, I think it's worth it to, to enter into it. She says, I want that, I desire that. 
Authenticity, I think, requires and invites you. It, it invites you to name your desire. Just this last weekend on the retreat, somebody came up to me. They know that I love coffee, and they know that if I was going to make the coffee, it was going to be better than the coffee that was served at the camp. And they said, Micah, will you make me a cup of coffee? And I was like, yes. I'm so proud. I'm so happy that you just named what you wanted. In a culture that is so averse to desire, to naming what you want, to being able to say out loud what you desire, especially in the Christian world, heavens to Betsy, like we're so averse to desire as Christians, because desire, it's the root of all sin, like that's what gets us into trouble, right? No, I don't think so. I think, I think when we numb desire and we're unwilling to say it out loud, that's what gets us into trouble. So to name our desire is just to turn on the lights. And everything's better in the light. Most things are better in the light. <laughs> you know what I mean. Can you name what you want? I've talked about this before, and I, and I, I, I recognize that it may be redundant, but I think it's worth repeating. Jesus often asks, what do you want to the person who comes to him? Can you name your desire for love, for friendship, for a job, for security, for rest, for resources, for adventure, for relief? Authenticity doesn't cover that up. It doesn't numb it. It doesn't layer it and so that it doesn't hurt so much. Authenticity asks you to name it and say it out loud in the presence of the divine, loud and clear. I think as we learn to do that, we learn to be in relationship with God in very real and honest ways where there isn't veneer or saccharine or some sort of uh, as if, but it's like true and honest, right? Remember the definition? It represents what's real and true and honest, actual. So to be authentic with each other and in community and with God, I think it invites us to name desire sometimes. And so I, I ask you that this morning. Like, do you know? Can you name that? in the season you find yourself in. So at Awaken, we want to cultivate a community that's authentic, that's true and real and actual. I want to invite you as people, as your pastor, to move towards authenticity, where you show up and your insides match your outsides more and more and more and more. Where you stand up in your own name, your own life, you own it, you move forward towards God, towards what you need, where you can say what needs to be said and ask what needs to be asked. where we name desire, where, where, where we name the sadness or the darkness or the silence or the loneliness, but it's tethered to hope and not hopelessness and despair. That, to me, is compelling. A community that does that together and relates to God in that way, I think that's good news. I think that's what people will actually long for. I think that's what our souls long for. And so I extend it to you as an invitation as a church to live into that, to move towards that increasingly that we would become more and more authentic human beings in our own lives, with ourselves, with the people around us and our friends and those close to us, and with God. And I think we have a beautiful story and a beautiful witness of what it looks like to be authentic in God's presence in Hannah. And so I offer it to you this morning. Pray with me if you will. God, uh, as we take a few moments, maybe a few more than normal this morning, 
to consider this woman and her struggle and her honesty. I pray that your Holy Spirit would just move in this room right now, wherever, uh, wherever people are at and whatever they've brought in, and however they're interacting with the story, God, I pray that they would find you faithful and near, that you are actually Emmanuel, the God who is with us, that we would sense that we are not alone. And so maybe in the next few moments of silence, consider these questions. Is there any way in which you're being invited to stand up today, to be honest about what's actual and real, to stand up into your own life, not the one you wished you were living, not the one you wished were true, not the one that you hoped might someday be true, but the one that's true right here and right now? Would you ask the courage would you ask God for the courage to stand up and move from that place as authentically as you can? Is there a need for space to name grief or waiting or silence or darkness, to be vulnerable in the face of that sadness, but to remain tethered to a community that holds that with you? Or is there an invitation to name something that you want, something that you desire, something that maybe is unfulfilled for the first time to say it out loud or to say it to a friend or write it down. Write it on the prayer space wall. Let it just be there to be honest and real and true about what your heart longs for in the presence of God. Holy Spirit, speak to us, I pray. Friends, before I offer a blessing to you and invite you to head back into the lives that you lead and live, I just want to say this, uh, I recognize that this passage and this sermon in particular finds some of you in very tender places, and that the journey of infertility and longing for children is a real and um, very hard space to be, both for men and women. And if you have found yourself there, and maybe you find yourself there, uh, I guess I would just want to say that like... All of you and all that you bring is welcome. Like the tears, the incapacitated lying on the floor, like all of it, it all is okay. Um, Only you can walk that journey, but you're not alone. And there's people that want to surround you and love you and say that you're not alone. So, um, I hope you know that. Would you stand for a benediction? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you his peace in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said together, amen. Amen. Grace and peace, friends. If you need prayer or would like to pray or write on the walls, that space is always there, so use it. Grace and peace. See ya. Find us online at www.awakeningcommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash community or on Twitter. Play with the community. See you next time.